You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is Wednesday, May 1st, 2019. I'm Peter Betke. I am the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And today I have with me uh, Professor Bruce Caldwell. Um, he is a research professor uh, in the economics department and the, the uh, director of the um, Center for History of Political Economy at Duke University. And in 2019 and 2020, he will be the distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Uh, thanks for being on the, uh, with Great us today. Great to be here, Pete. Um, so I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about uh, Chope and uh, the Summer Institute that you run at CHOPE. Uh, uh, so CHOPE is the short name for Center for History of Political Economy. Um, so if you could just uh, fill us in on the plans for this summer, but then maybe some retrospective on yeah. what you've achieved so far. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's go back uh, in time. Uh, Duke has long been known as a place where people could study uh, the history of political economy or the history of economic thought. Um, Crawford Goodwin, Neil DeMarkey, Roy Weintraub were all professors there. Uh, the journal History of Political Economy has been published there since the late 60s, I think. Uh, there was, starting in the late 80s, an annual conference that was sponsored by the journal. In fact, I was the director of the first conference, which was on Karl Menger, and it was to celebrate the coming of the Karl Menger papers. Um, and I was at UNC Greensboro for many, many years, used to go over to Duke to attend uh, their workshops. They had a workshop during the year um, where people would present papers. And uh, it struck me that this was a wonderful uh, place, and I wanted to make sure that history of economics survived in the discipline. As we both know, history of thought is not something that is a field that is taught everywhere. Uh, a lot of places, uh, particularly research institutions, have no historians of economics. So the idea was to try to uh, uh, find a place that uh, could support work there. So I was successful in raising some funds. And um, we opened the center in 2008. The additional uh, programs that the center brought included a fellowship program where people come for either a semester or a full year. Some of them are postdocs. Some of them are uh, people who are in the last year of writing their dissertation. Some of them are mid-career scholars who come to Duke to, uh, to work on a research project. We have an annual summer institute. Uh, and I will talk about the one that's coming up, but uh, we've run those. I think this is going to be our 11th uh, summer institute. And so the, the fellowship program helps to support people who are doing research. The Summer Institute is mostly aimed at people who think that they might want to go on to teach uh, history of economics either as a freestanding course or as a, uh, an add-on to whatever course they might be teaching, uh, provide a historical dimension. So uh, we aim that then at uh, the reason that we do that at Duke is um, as I said, many PhD programs don't have history of thought available. So this is a way of, since they don't have it at their institutions, we just bring people to ours. So uh, any listeners out there who are in PhD programs, either as, uh, uh, as students or as professors who are teaching it, who you see likely candidates for such a, uh, uh, such a program, we advertise for it on the Societies for the History of Economics list, shoe list, but more importantly in the various uh, blogs. Uh, Mankiw's blog always, uh, he's very nice to give us a, a shout out about this, but also of course your, your blog, Pete, uh, Tyler Cowan's blog, uh, others that, uh, that uh, let people know about our, our summer institutes. Usually they're two weeks, usually in June, 
and uh, I think they're they're pretty special. Uh, the other uh, great uh, resource that we've got at Duke, and one of the things that helps us attract uh, fellows to our fellowship program is the Economist's uh, Papers Archive. Uh, currently, we have, I think, 14, 13 or 14 uh, Nobel Prize winning Economist papers there. We have the papers of the American Economic Association. Uh, we have uh, the papers of the History of Economic Society. Uh, among the, and many, many others uh, who just don't, economists who just don't happen to have Nobel uh, mm -hmm. Prizes, uh, but of the people who might be of, of special interest, I mean, they're, they're prominent mainstream economists like Paul Samuelson, um, but also among uh, those who are part of the mainstream, we have uh, uh, Doug North's papers there and Vernon Smith's papers there. Carl Manger's papers are there. Yeah. Oscar Morgenstern's papers are there. So it's a nice, it's a very nice collection. So the Summer Institute, as I said, we, we have it uh, each June. Uh, this particular summer, uh, we're aiming it at uh, directly at people who might want to teach a course in history of economic thought. So Steve Metema uh, and I are going to be teaching it. It runs, I think, for 10 days, uh, two sessions a day for about two hours, two and a half hours. We gave them a bunch of readings uh, to do beforehand that we hope they all have uh, have done or at least done most of the reading and we'll talk both about content but also about how uh, we have set up the courses mm -hmm. um, uh, Steve and I have been teaching uh, you know, combined number of years of probably over 50 and we he's done it in a large section format I've done it in small uh, smaller section formats I've taught it at both the master's level at, but also I teach a course at Duke that is aimed at freshmen so various levels of uh, uh, background of students and just talking about you know how you might set up a course how you might introduce the ideas yeah that's different great. and different ways to do it because uh, you know you talk about somebody like Marx or Smith or Marshall or Hayek or anybody right uh, lots of different people approach them in different ways yeah it's a great um, I actually when you were um, when you were talking about the summer Institute and the setting up of the the center at Duke, um, I was thinking that uh, one of the things that's really um, uh, significant uh, is um, I enjoy going to the HES meetings probably better than any other meeting. Yeah. If I wasn't presenting a paper, I still would find infinite number of sessions to go to that that's I right. find fascinating. And I think that uh, the number of young people that are interested in these ideas is uh, pretty phenomenal. And I, And when I think about it, um, all the ones that I talk to, they've been at some sense either through your program or spent time at Duke and, and whatnot. So the, the 11 years of the program have been wildly successful, I think. So That's congratulations right. on that. Well, thank you very much. But it's also been a, uh, almost a consumption good for me yeah. <laughs> because it's great to have both the, uh, the workshops and the people who are visiting each year and then the summer institutes. Because you know, people self-select for these summer institutes. And right. the ones who come are really, really excited. And it's great to, yeah. to, to do that um, and to know that there are people who are interested in the field. So um, from where you began um, to now, um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, so uh, for, if, for listeners there who are uh, PhD students that are interested in maybe making an inroads into history of economic uh, thought as a field, um, some uh, state of the the field of where it stands in terms of how uh, you know what the expectations are for research, uh, what the journals are that are uh, you know the where where they need to be pitching their research and that and whatnot. Sure. So um, history of economic thought or history of economics, both phrases are used, uh, has always been a a uh, kind of a subfield within economics. Now, when I was in grad school, I actually, it was required that I take a course in it, as well as a course in economic history. I doubt there's any, or many, you know, a handful of places where that might still be true. Can I tell a funny story about sure, that? When I was at NYU, um, where Bill Baumel taught, yeah, um, but also uh, Leslie Leontief taught, and they decided to eliminate the history of economic thought requirement. Mm -hmm. So they used to have a history of economic thought and an economic history requirement. 
and then they decided to just get rid of it. Um, and uh, obviously, um, I was the one teaching the history <laughs> of economic thought, so I kind of, you know, I was a pre-tenured faculty member, so I understood that that uh, th this was another, uh, you know, uh, uh, foretelling of things that were bad to come or whatever. So we, so with my colleagues, uh, we tried to get um, to rally up some support, and because uh, Bommel was actually who's a a master historian of thought was actually one of the ones leading the charge to kill yeah. uh, because of the Stigler kind of position that, um, you know, whatever's good in the ancients is actually already embodied in the moderns and that the opportunity costs of reading the ancients is too high kind of thing. Right. And uh, so we tried to get Leontief on board and Leontief agreed. And he, he came to the meeting already to, to uh, you know, get riled up and, and defend the position. But when he, it was his turn to talk, he ended up spending the whole time defending economic history. And then, like, so someone said, Andy Schotter, who's the department chairman, said, uh, Vasily, it's a it's, uh, history of economic thought, not economic history. And Leontief stopped for a minute, and he goes, ah, that's important, too. <laughs> <laughs> and so and the vote say never the mind. Vote, the vote didn't go the vote didn't go the the way that I was hoping but I think that that's we also at George Mason in my second year after I returned here um, got rid of the requirement right. um, and so I'm not sure if there's any place that requires it anymore it's a real shame I think I think there might be a couple of heterodox places that that require it that yeah. have PhD programs but but not many maybe in, and maybe maybe some places in Europe yeah, do right, uh, but not in the states or Canada. So uh, many people might be then thinking, "Gee whiz, you know why? <laughs> why do why this?" Do this? Yeah. Uh, and I think it takes a, a, a certain type of person. But the the first thing I would say is it's it's always been a tough field. Uh, when I was uh, coming through in the 1970s, I had two different um, episodes that I'd like to recount. One was when I was maybe a third year student and I was a pretty good student in the PhD program and I can re remember uh, we would have beer with the professors on Friday afternoons and this one professor who was uh, I had taken macro from uh, macro seminar from said geez you're so smart you know what are you doing with this history of thought you know this crazy waste of your your talents and I just said, I love it. Um, so the conversation didn't go very far. <laughs> but uh, then my, when I was in the job market, um, uh, there was a chair of one of the search committees for a school that I would have liked to have gotten an interview for. And anyway, he was sitting out in the lobby uh, bar area, and a bunch of grad students had kind of gathered around him. And he was, I guess, trying to be personable in the way that old economists sometimes do, and he said, so, you know, why don't you tell us who you are? And he went around, and I said, yeah, I'm Bruce Caldwell, I'm at UNC, and I'm my field is uh, history of economic thought. And he goes, oh, history of economic thought. I've heard people say that it's a dying field, but I have a different opinion. I think it's a dead field. <laughs> and all of the other students, <laughs> and I felt, you know, you son of a gun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't use stronger language, language in, <laughs> in my in my mind. Yeah. And uh, it, it was actually something that made me even more determined, uh, I think, uh, to go ahead and, and, and do it. But, yeah, it is a field that you're not going to find that many Ph.D. programs that offer it. So if you're interested in it, uh, coming to Duke for a summer institute is certainly something that you can do. And if you become really interested in it, um, you, you know, the ones who come through Duke University who end up having history of economics as a field, we insist that they have another field that they can get a, uh, a job easily with. Mm -hmm. Okay, Just have it as a second field. And if it's something that you actually love, and it's, it's, it's a small number of people who are going to love it, but I mean, I think those who do uh, should, should pursue their dreams. Uh, you can come, if you're enjoying it, to come as a fellow to the fellowship program in your final year. You know, you, you've finished your coursework. You're doing your, you're doing your various essays uh, that you do for a dissertation. If you have one that is uh, oriented towards history of economics, and often 
Students do literature surveys very typically with their dissertations. There's a fine line between a literature survey, which is just this rote repetition of things that are important in a particular area that you're investigating, and one that is an actual historical piece. And we can help you write that uh, if that's something that you want to do. And that is a really fine way to get introduced on to the craft of writing a good historical paper, uh, combining a, a background in the field. Uh, sometimes you can introduce, depending on the topic, archival research. Uh, There's just lots of ways you can do it. And that's what we do in our workshop. Every week we have somebody in, and we try to take whatever paper they've got and try to make it a better paper, uh, depending on what they're starting with. So um, that is, uh, that's kind of to encourage people who might have the interest that, that they have those resources. So where do people get published? Well, it uh, depends on the, very much on the field. So we bring in people who are economists, but we also bring in people who are in other uh, disciplines, related disciplines of political science, mm -hmm. of philosophy. Uh, we've had a geographer there. Uh, classical studies uh, person. So those will have different journals. Uh, some people who are more interested in kind of PPE. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are journals in PPE. There are journals in history of thought. As I said, uh, History of Political Economy is published at Duke. There's the Journal for the History of Economic Thought, which is the HES, which is the History of Economic Society um, mm -hmm. Society Journal. So there's there, there are actually a lot of outlets. There are European journals, maybe three or four. There's an Australian journal. Mm -hmm. And uh, the History of Economic Society meetings that you mentioned is actually a wonderful way for people who might be interested to dip their toes in. Mm -hmm. um, there's an annual meeting. Uh, it's not always, it's traditionally been at the, at the, um, at the institution of the president-elect, but we've now moved to a different model where we're trying to have them in better uh, places, yeah, 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 because some, t you know, if you're if you're at a small college, uh, it often is not a very good place to have a, a, yeah. a large meeting, um, and as you said, you know, you go to those meetings and you have sessions on Adam Smith, on Marx, on Keynes, on Hayek, on Marshall, on all these people. Yeah, it's very intellectually uh, exciting. This year's meetings in uh, Columbia, in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me um, ask you another follow-up question about the publishing thing because you've been very successful at being able to publish um, history of economic thought work in uh, flagship journals like the Journal of Economic Literature. Right. Um, and, uh, and other people, for example, Joseph Persky had a column mm -hmm. that he edited for the Journal of Economic Perspectives for years and people could get articles there now. They might not have the same uh, cachet as being in the AER, JPE, QJE, or Econometrica, but they reach a very wide audience, a much wider audience than, say, Hope uh, mm -hmm. reaches just by being the fact that of it's course. a journal of economic literature. Right. Um, do you have any advice to young scholars about how to maybe figure out how to find opportunities to do stuff like that? Yeah. Well, something like the JEL is... You have to propose a, a topic to the editor, mm -hmm. uh, and it has to be a good topic. So I, I have been lucky. I, I did one on Hayek and socialism that appeared in uh, the 90s after the fall of the wall. Yeah. Uh, so that was a timely uh, time to do that. I did one on um, Popper. Popper, clarifying Popper. And uh, Popper is a philosopher of science who a lot of economists uh, made reference to his work, but might not have <laughs> known too much about his work, right. so yeah, it was yeah. an attempt to yeah. to try to say what Popper had to say. And uh, th I can say now, because it's been accepted, uh, I, I did one on the 75th anniversary of the publication of Road to Serfdom, so that'll be coming out. It may, not, it may actually come out in the 76th year <laughs> afterwards, because there is a lag time, as for yeah. most journals. But the thing is about, about journals, though... Um, yeah, if your if your goal is to be at a top twenty or top thirty research institution, where you have to get published in the top five journals uh, regularly, um, or at least more than once, uh, history of thought is probably not going to be a field that you're um, going to pursue. You have to be a really special person to be able to combine the ability to publish in uh -huh. those journals plus also do good historical work, um, and that's fine. But let's say you're not 
looking at the top 30, um, particularly if you're looking at a liberal arts college uh, where publication, journal publication is important, but so is good teaching. Uh, the ability to teach history of thought, this is a kind of course that is custom made for liberal arts colleges. So is it a bonus to have that uh, ability uh, on your Vita? And it's a plus. I mean, this is something that could end up helping you get a, a decent job. Now, I, as I said, you also have to be a labor economist or an econometrician, whatever your particular uh, other field or fields are. But history of thought can also work very well with a PPE kind of background if uh, people go in that direction or if you have other ways of approaching interdisciplinarity. It's one of those fields that lends itself very easily uh, to be able to uh, to work with people who are working with other fields. Um, we had a guy who was a, this year who went through our fellowship program who applied to a special program, undergraduate program, University of Chicago, and was accepted. And he'll, it's, it's an interdisciplinary sort of program. And the fact that he came through uh, a history PhD program, but also spent time uh, with historians of economics and people who are also in other disciplines yeah. at, at Duke, uh, I think helped him get that job. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great gig that right. he's got. So yeah. he's really looking forward to it. I think that um, one of the things that we've seen in the last 20 years is, um, uh, and more recently um, in the last decade, but in the, in the last 20 years, I think, is the rise of honors colleges because sure. in the state universities because people want to they use it as a way to recruit uh, very good high school students um, and keep them at home <laughs> and uh, and also give them the small college experience but within the large university so not just the way James Madison College was set up at Michigan State but there's like we have an honors college here at George Mason right. University with that idea uh, NYU had an honors program that was set up like that um, when I was up there and then also now this rise of these PPE programs. Right. And history of economic thought is very important for that um, kind of work because it's the uh, kind of glue in those courses across, um, especially if you are um, can talk sensibly about, you know, uh, Smith and Marx and Mill and because uh, that, that political science, mm -hmm. sociology, all of them. So I do think there's great growth opportunities um, I, I was at LSE earlier this uh, semester, and uh, I gave a talk uh, to the economics department that I was invited over to give. Um, there's a regular faculty and everything like that, but there were a group of students there who had started on their own a history of economic thought uh, reading group. And, uh, and so Tim Besley, who was my host, uh, introduced me to them, and um, I started cor you know corresponding a little bit with them about how they're doing this. They just are interested in multiple perspectives in economics because the financial crisis in many ways shook the faith that there's just one perspective and so they want to hear the different ones. So that's another thing that's been going on as well. Sure, absolutely. So um, one of the things that I think is maybe different, uh, maybe the Duke project is, is one of the things that really um, helped get that off the ground, but uh, the, the Economist Papers project, I mean, is because those, uh, there's this collection, they're taken care of the right way. And um, so there's a lot of uh, demand for archival work um, at the moment in doing this. So students who are trained don't just sit and read uh, the Wealth of Nations <laughs> in their dorm room and then write, you know, uh, things they go and they try to do archival research. So I wanted to know if you could maybe talk a little bit about the joys and frustrations of archival work in general, um, and in particular with regard to your own work on Hayek. Um, I love your uh, getting emails from you because you have a little uh, uh, saying at the end of the emails, which is about, you know, archival work. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. So 
uh, actually the saying is it isn't directly about archival work it's Edwin Kanan's ed edited the Wealth of Nations and he said trying to locate a citation uh, often takes hours and not finding the citation often takes days yeah. <laughs> which, is, yeah. which was great and of course he was he so what he's talking about there is Adam Smith might cite something but cite it incompletely because right. people didn't used to have standardized ways of citing so he'd try to track it down and if like Hayek used to <laughs> do all the time he'd Smith transposed numbers or did made some other mistake, you'd have to try to find the book and then go through the book and find the, the cited passage. And I actually had to do that with when I was editing Hayek's Road to Serfdom uh, because it was before you really had just this Google search thing that right. would allow you to find this stuff. So yeah. I'd, I'd go through a book and sometimes read it three times just trying to find one particular passage. Yeah. Maddening. That was when I edited that little line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was when I started editing Hayek's stuff that I that I saw that. If I can in interrupt, do you have a yeah. uh, in your introduction to the definitive edition of the Road to Serfdom? Yeah. You have a, a wonderful way. It's either there or in the Abuse of Reason project. You have a wonderful way to describing how you're going to introduce your editor corrections, uh, because you have editor corrections that you note, editor corrections that you don't know <laughs> and so it's kind of right. it's really kind of amazing yeah, yeah so lots of corrections yeah yeah <laughs> right yeah right so um okay but back to archival work so our what is archival work well so uh hayek has at the hoover institution and one reason i'm going out there next year is to begin work on the second volume of hayek's biography that i've been working on with hans jorg klausinger uh, for a number of years uh so an archive is take a cardboard carton and put in a, a folder of, of papers. So these cartons, if the folders are thin enough, could hold maybe 100 uh, folders. Mm -hmm. Well, he has 170 cartons, so it's just a huge amount of stuff. What kinds of stuff? Well, he has letters that he sent back and forth that's professional correspondence. He has early drafts of papers when people wrote papers and typed them on right. paper instead of on their computers. Uh, he has got notes, class notes. He's got um, papers from other people. Uh, he's got all different sorts of things. He had a particular habit of using three-by-five cards that he would write down things on. So there's maybe at least a dozen, maybe 15 or 20 of these boxes that have like 500 of these cards each. <laughs> it's just an incredible um, thing. So like empirical work, you never know what you're going to find. Uh, you could look through a box and go through folder after folder. And, and in Hayek's case, uh, once he got the Nobel Prize, people would write him unsolicited letters. Here's my paper. What do you think of it? And his secretary had a standard uh, response that said, Professor Hayek thanks you for the paper that you've sent, and he will certainly try to get to it. And if he has any comments, he will certainly get back to you. So you have lots of stuff like that. 95% uh, of the stuff in an archive is probably stuff that's not interested mm -hmm. to you, uh, depending on your research project, what, what you're looking for. But then you never know when you're going to find stuff that's fascinating. And so my first archival ex I, I had trained as an historian of economics, I was of the type that you described earlier where I would sit down and read a bunch of stuff and then try to put together an interpretation. Mm -hmm. Hadn't done archival work. So in the 1991, I think, was my first visit to the Hoover Archive. I had written a paper on Popper. I was interested in Hayek, so I went immediately to the Popper-Hayek file. It was, it blew me away. It's what turned me into an a real historian of economics, I would say. Uh, there was the correspondence between Karl Popper and Friedrich Hayek during World War II. Popper had gone to New Zealand. Hayek was in London, and then London evacuated. The LSE evacuated to Cambridge, so he was at Cambridge. And I had read Popper's Poverty of Historicism, when I was working on Popper as a, as a research topic. I never understood the book. 
it started out in one particular direction. Mm -hmm. Halfway through, it went somewhere else. What was he doing? Everything else by Popper is usually so well organized and 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 straightforward, uh, not simple necessarily, but you know, well argued. And it just was a mess of a book. I never understood it. Looking at that correspondence, reading through it in a day and a half, I suddenly understood. <laughs> it helped me understand a text that I had not been able to make sense of. That's that would be. The kind of er sort of moment yeah. that you mm -hmm. have of how archival work can really help you become a better scholar about some text. And what it was was this uh, Popper had presented a paper in Hayek's seminar in the mid 30s, initiated correspondence again in the early 40s. They started to exchange back and forth papers. They came to realize that they were taking very similar approaches. Hayek was the editor of Economica and could publish mm -hmm. um, the poverty of historicism in pieces in Economica, but they used language somewhat differently. So I, it, what seems evident is that Popper ended up changing <coughs> the direction of his paper, which was not finished, halfway through. So uh, what had happened is that uh, Popper sent him the first uh, of three installments that ended up being the poverty of historicism. Then after having sent off that first one and getting it starting to be published, their correspondence back and forth meant that Popper felt he needed to make his views use language that was more consistent with some of the views that Hayek had. In many ways they agreed, but in certain points they were they had disagreement. And here's this guy who's publishing <laughs> Popper's work, so he wants to say, okay, the, the, the apparent disagreements are not so, not so big. So um, that's, that helps to explain why the poverty of historicism reads yeah. the way it does. So that was, that was my first experience of, of just that riches. I would also just say, though, the other part that I learned on that very first visit is how cool it is to have in your hands these documents written by these big figures, yeah. and you're holding it and reading it, just as Popper did and Hayek did when they wrote to each other. It, it is just the coolest experience in the world. And I think if you don't think that's a cool experience, you're probably not going to be a good historian of right. economics. Or you're not going to enjoy it. But if, you, if that does sound like something that's attractive, it is so much fun. And I just, when I go to the archives, I, 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 I've told this story before. I love to eat. I go to the Hoover, and sometimes I will get up because it opens at like 8.45. I'll skip breakfast, and if I'm working there, I'll forget about lunch. I'll just work straight through to, to 4.45 when they kick me out. So it's it's that much fun. Um, anyway. I think I've told you this, is that I've had the chance to, to well, first I, I had the opportunity here to uh, be involved in the processing of, of Buchanan's uh, papers and um, – and access to all of that and trying to get that done the right way. And um, now this is a little bit uh, more um, too one-sided in some sense, but, you know, Buchanan's kind of a hero to me. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's really funny because even when I first started working in those papers, he was still alive. And I can remember I, I got so excited because I read all this stuff about the way they were building the program at, at VPI. I wrote a paper on the past, present, and future of public choice. And uh, so I was I was doing all this stuff. And I got all excited because it's memos from Buchanan himself. And I and I told him I wanted to talk to him. And so uh, Joanne Burgess at the time used to record any time that you talk to Jim because they wanted to put that into the archives as well. So it was a weird kind of setup. But anyway, I go in there, and I'm all excited, giddy. I'm like, you know, uh, Jim, you know, look at this, you know, thing. You redesigned the curriculum of the Ph.D. program. It's perfect the way you designed it, blah, 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 all this stuff. And he, go, he, go, he goes, now, don't get so excited. He goes, that was when I left, you, you, uh, you know, UCLA, and I was escaping to the mountains. <laughs> He goes, I didn't think that I was there to retire. <laughs> I was like, no. It's like, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. But at the LSE, it's the same kind of thing. I get so excited in reading Robbins, yeah. uh, you know, trying what he's trying to do in the department. 
and you can read it and you see the alternative offers that he's being made as a young man to go teach somewhere else or run some else and he's like weighing all of these and stuff and I get so excited but I have to always discipline myself by the the Buchanan voice in my head saying you know it's just I was just you know trying to get a raise right <laughs> you know kind of thing so um, but yeah it was a it's it's fascinating actually I want to ask you about that question because there's kind of a moral responsibility for archival historians uh, in, in, in thought, similar to the kind of moral responsibility that's in also for people doing empirical work. You know, one of my professors, Kenneth Boulding, uh, used to like to say is that we would make more progress in science if we published the wastebaskets of, you know, other economists and doing these things. And, um, you know, there's obviously, you know, selection and all these other kind of things. How do we discipline the the enthusiasm that we feel with archives as well? Well, I see archives as a test of one's intuitions. I think people do come at particular topics with particular viewpoints. It's inevitable. But, uh, and sometimes you will rely on memoirs of actors about particular episodes, but what's useful to test that is to go back and see what documents actually exist, whether they support or don't support a particular point of view, and then you check out documents that exist in other archives. A lot of times, a particular person you're interested in, maybe the stuff that they were sending out actually isn't in their archives. It's in somebody else's archives. And so it's... uh, I think it's it's a way of constraining interpretations, yeah. and and I suppose you could ethically use. Yeah, I I would think it would be an abuse of, of scholarly ethics to just cherry pick particular letters or phrases within letters to support a particular point of view. But but a, a good historian, in my opinion would try to read through an archives and not just find stuff that supports yeah. their their priors. It's not, a game of, it's not a game of gotcha. It's yeah. a game of exploration. Yeah. And and that's why I compare it to empirical work, because yeah. empirical work constrains you, too. Yeah. Now you th- and there are ways to, to do bad empirical work, too, obviously, to, yeah. to kind of cherry pick or to just reformulate the, uh, the thing until you get the results you want. But, I mean, that's everyone recognizes that's bad empirical work, too. So the the issue of memory and human frailties uh, yeah, yeah. is a pretty amazing thing because the way we, if you're one of these people, scholars, um, that is um, uh, established enough that people care to ask you when you're 80 to reflect back on when you're 25, it's, it's oftentimes your memory is going to be not um, the full memory. And so, you know, and you also like to tell stories about yourself that Make put yourself in a different light. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Marianne Johnson on, on with Buchanan, you know, ha- he has this, um, you know, epiphany moment like he likes to explain, which is that he was done with his dissertation. He was in the library and then, you know, just serendipity. He read Vixel or whatever. And then it turns out, you know, of course, that he was exposed to Vixel in his first year of school. <laughs> and, you know, so that epiphany story doesn't quite work. Um, and, uh, and I, I also, I like to point this out cause I'm a fan of Hayek's, which is that, uh, Friedman always used to say about Hayek's capital theory, you know, and it's quoted in the Lanny Evanstein book and everything that, oh, I never understood what Hayek was arguing. It was such a mess. What is that, you know, capital theory, which may in fact be true, but he says like, oh, I never understood it. But if you actually look at his, uh, syllabus from when he was in graduate school himself taking, uh, price theory from Viner that they actually read more Bombavric than they read Marshall mm-hmm. in that class from the syllabus from 32. So he was fully, they read from capital and interest, which means that they read the whole nine yards, all about roundaboutness, all these things like that, that the online. And so it's not that Friedman was unexposed to it. He might not agree with it, but it wasn't like the way he characterizes it. And I think you see that. What are, what are some of the egregious <laughs> examples in Hayek? where his memory is so at odds with, like, what you find, actually. Okay. So 
One of them, actually, I mentioned in the editor's introduction to The Road to Serfdom, because he wrote a memo to Beveridge in 1933. And in his reminiscences, he talks about that as taking place in 1937 or 38. So I knew about this document that was in the archives. And the reason it's important is that it was a very early statement of some of the themes that you can find in The Road to Serfdom. But when I saw this document, and I made a Xerox copy of it, and I brought it home and and read it, and in my margin of it, it says, this looks like parts of Road to Serfdom. That was my reaction to it. But I, of course, didn't think it was the beverage memo because Hayek had said the beverage memo was 37 or 38. Beverage actually was gone from LSE by 38. So if I had <laughs> known that, I would have immediately said, wait a second, this, is, this seems a little suspicious. But yeah. it wasn't until I was at a, a, a conference, a small conference in, in Cambridge, England. Larry Hayek was there, uh, Marcia Sen, uh, and Sue Housen was there. And Sue said, oh, I've got the beverage memo. Because I, I said, yeah, I could never find this memo from 37, 38. And she said, I've got it. It was in the beverage papers. I've got a copy in my in my attic mm-hmm. in Cambridge. So we went over and got it. And dang, if it wasn't the 33 memo. So it, what had happened in Hayek's head was the 33 memo, he then wrote Freedom and the Economic System, which was published in 38. And he just put that, you know, he, he was just mixing up the dates. Yeah. And it was, you know, he's he's responding to an interview question mm-hmm. and it's easy for people to make mistakes like that when they're talking off the top of their head yeah. um, and that was one that that uh, you know I just prevented me from seeing what was right in front of my face uh, yeah. uh, for a while yeah. um, and, and I, I I can't think of any uh, right off but that, that would be the the real one that w- <laughs> yeah. the really big one that actually affected some of the research that I was doing now, we're here this week um, because we're going to be having a, a two-day conversation about volume one of your biography and of Hayek, and, uh, and you're going to be going uh, next year, and you've been doing some of the research already. Um, maybe uh, you can, uh, without too many spoilers, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the things in, in volume one and then also in, in hopefully maybe in volume two that sure. we should expect to see. Yeah. So volume one, Hayek lived from 1899 and died in 1992. So volume one I is... Should, I should point out yeah. that in your book, Hayek's Challenge, you have one of the great lines. I'm going to butcher it right now, but you talk about that not only is the Hayek's challenge, but the challenge to the scholar studying Hayek because he wrote <laughs> from the 1920s into the 1980s and wrote in all these different disciplines. Right. And it does. it is amazing. It's when you... When you realize that, you think of Hayek as sort of a, a modern-day Adam Smith kind of Absolutely. idea. But at the same time, it is pretty daunting, and it's amazing that you've been able to negotiate all of this so masterfully. So I want to congratulate you on that. But uh, also, uh, you know, maybe you can tell a little bit about that evolution in these biographies as well. Sure. So I think the second volume is going to be harder because it will take us further away from economics and into fields that I hadn't. And Hans-Jörg Klausinger, my co-author, is also an economist. So uh, neither of us have the expertise that you would like to have to deal with some of the later work. On the other hand, Hayek was trained as an economist, too. So perhaps it's a, uh, you know, the way an economist would look at fields like political philosophy mm-hmm. or methodology, things like that. But the, the first volume will go through World War II and probably end in 1946, and the second, 47 through 92. So in the first volume, you've got his life as a kid in Vienna, his uh, period in World War One when he fought on the Italian front, his period at the University of Vienna, uh, the uh, wonderful trip to New York and to America in 1923-24, <laughs> where he had very strong really negative reactions to 
American society and street society in particular that he encountered in New York. Uh, then his period as a young economist in Vienna, then he gets invited to London School of Economics, ends up getting a job there, has a great friendship with Lionel Robbins, the, 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 the grand seminar that they ran in the 30s when much of microeconomics was formalized mm -hmm. uh, to the extent of the sort of formalizations that you see in an intermediate price theory text. The um, start of World War II, and, oh well, socialist calculation debate, capital theory debates, all those things that took place in the 1930s, and then the start of World War II, where he starts the Abuse of Reason Project, and out of that comes uh, eventually the, uh, the Road to Serfdom, and pieces like Use of Knowledge in Society, and then the end of the war and his reunion with his, uh, you know, his, his whole family, not his wife and children, but his the family he was born in were all still in, in uh, Nazi, either Nazi Germany or in uh, Austria, which was part of Germany at that point, mm -hmm. um, because of the Anschluss in 38. So uh, just how that all comes together. And then the second volume, uh, uh, there will also be things of considerable interest because uh, uh, 47 is the Montpellier Society, how that came about, uh, work on the sensory order, he moved his divorce, his move to the University of Chicago, working on the Committee on Social Thought, Constitution of Liberty, uh, ultimately law legislation, liberty uh, coming out of that in the 70s, but uh, the Chicago years, I, I guess the Constitution of Liberty being one of the big things, but also his, his kind of move towards uh, investigation of spontaneous orders or complex phenomena. So uh, Nobel Prize would be in the in the second volume, um, and uh, his move to Freiburg and then Salzburg and Freiburg again. So there's there's considerable interest. Uh, we we are uh, having a division of labor. Uh, as, as luck would have it, uh, I spent a lot of time in English uh, speaking places in either United States or or, or 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 England, and then he early part of his life and latter part of his life he was in German uh, speaking countries. So Hans-Jörg is from Vienna, um, has the ability to get into the various archives that needs to get into. And I think he, yeah, we, we've actually had a very, very easy collaboration uh, thus far. Uh, we'll see. I'm really looking forward to the comments that we'll be receiving from your group. How many languages did Hayek, was Hayek well, comfortable with? Well, he, he, he complained that he didn't really learn French. Uh, <laughs> he spoke everything. It seemed to me he, you know, he's classically trained, so he had Greek and Latin. Uh, right. He he was at the Italian front, so he learned a little Italian. Uh, he translated a, a, a piece from Dutch. Uh, he 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 spent a summer in Norway and and was able to report on meetings that took place in Norwegian, mm. uh, in Germany. That was one of his first. Uh, yeah, he was just a, uh, just amazing, in that regard. Yeah, uh, what he knew. Um, so, I don't know how many, <laughs> but a yeah. lot, a lot more than me. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, one of, the, I mean, I, I think on all of these elite economists, obviously, you're sampling on the very far end tail of the distribution of, sure. you know, and so they have talents that are, uh, you know, quite unique, um, analytically and other talents that they have mm -hmm. to bring to bear on it. Um, well, it's fascinating work that you're doing, and and. Uh, um, it's um, fa a great example of scholarship. Um, if you go back even to Hayek's challenge, I think um, the way the, the um, that is a less archival uh, right. work and more of an interpretive work, but it's it's a fantastic way in which you tie the unity of Hayek's program throughout that, and so in many ways. And so I, I you know just applaud you on all of the, the great scholarship. Uh, maybe we can end again with the beginning and just uh, a, a look back in order to look forward. What I mean by that is, you know, um, when you started out as your career, um, as you told the story, um, you understood the, the sort of uh, risks that you were taking. Um, there's There are people that will listen to this show, are people that would like to take the same kind of risks that you've taken. Um, at some level, because people like yourself were did that, took that risk, 
it's a little less risky today than it was maybe when you uh, took it. Um, but what would what were more of some of the best lessons that you've learned in your career that you could maybe pass on to the next generation? Sure. Well, um, thank you for your kind words about my work. I think if you're passionate about the particular area that you're interested in, now I did my dissertation in the days when you typed it on a typewriter, and I didn't know how to type. So I would send my dissertation to my mother in Florida, who would type it up and then send it back. And of course, the, the fear was that it would get lost in the mail. And <laughs> I'd have to rewrite. Because I guess we had Xerox machines back then, but I was too stupid to even think, you know, go ahead and Xerox it, you moron, or too cheap, because it's probably a dime a copy. Uh, and in any event, uh, I just figured my mother was really going to be the only person to ever read uh, my dissertation, which was beyond positivism. It's about methodologies of knowledge. And it's a great it, book. It turns out that, that there was a market for it. Yeah. So sometimes you just get surprised. You know, I, I began editing The Road to Serfdom, uh, and I began edit as general editor of the Hayek Collected Works. Uh, it took about two or three years for each one of those volumes uh, to be produced. So you had to check all the footnotes, just like that that Edwin Cannon uh, uh, quote uh, stated. And then write an editor's introduction that was putting the stuff into context. That takes a long time. And I just never thought there'd be any return except the return of the scholarship for that. As it turns out, the road to serfdom yeah, it's held sold. up by Glenn Beck, <laughs> <laughs> and and it sells you know a huge yeah. number of, of copies. So yeah. uh, that that was a that it's was a gift that keeps on giving. Keeps a gift that keeps <laughs> on giving. So you just never know. You never Can I ask know. you a question about sure, the road surfdom that's separate from this? Hmm. So um, it's a kind of an intriguing question with Hayek and the road to serfdom because the condensed Reader's Digest condensed mm -hmm. version. So Hayek is adamant that he's not writing a a slippery slope kind of argument. The Reader's Digest version doesn't quite present it that way, but it could be read that way. But clearly the look cartoon one is definitely right. that way. And I'm sure that if I saw a cartoon version of the general theory, it would have a kind of a stripped down version that would be the silly kind of version um, of it rather than a complicated version of it. And, you know, there's just that goes with all works of Marx. It would be like that well, or whatever. Two marks yeah, that. and you would get like the mm -hmm. sort of, uh, in fact, I've seen one of them, a presentation where, you know, the worker is, is put into a, a, Greek, a meat grinder, you know, and that's like the vision of what capitalism is. What, what do you think is the responsibility of an author of the use of their works? Ah. Well, Popper says that once it goes out into world three, you, you have, have no any, control. You have no control over it. Yeah. And I think that's pretty much right. right. Uh, so you have the author's intention. Yeah. And as much as an author might try to put that across, yeah. if the book appears at a particular moment in time, like The Road to Serfdom did, right. uh, and it gets used by particular groups in yeah. ways that Hayek was not particularly happy about and said that i mean yeah. this will be in that in that road to serfdom 75th anniversary uh jl piece yeah. i mean he, it's clear he he resisted the way it was being used both in england and in the united, united states, states but yeah. to no avail right I mean, it was out there and it was going to be used the way it was going to be used and it is an intriguing thing with a book like that because when hayek says he's writing a political book i think I interpret him as saying that he's writing a book that is um, like an old-style political economy book. There's a difference, a world of difference between that and a politicized book. Right. And I think everyone sort of thinks he's admitting that he's writing a politicized book, but he's not. No. He's actually trying to write a subtle argument that is directed at a particular track of the time, but he gets pigeonholed into this. And I think actually... Um, you know the the look, <laughs> the 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 summary in the cartoon version has a kind of deleterious effect on the mental capacity of his critics. 
to deal with him on his own terms. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, remember, the dedication of the book is to socialists of all parties. Yeah. He was worried that people who were adopting uh, views that he thought were going to be wrong yeah. and lead to bad things. But um, that's what he meant by a political right. Thing. And this goes back to your beverage report, uh, beverage memo, because it's quite clear that he's not challenging people on their ends that they're seeking. He thinks that they are pursuing means which are uh, uh, inimical to the end. Yeah, and as a result, that's like, don't do this. It's a warning to them. And uh, so anyway, it's fascinating. I, I mean, um, this is a great uh, uh, a great project that you're uh, doing. I'm so happy that it's going to be in the JEL. But other, um, so that's kind of serendipity yes, to the young is. people. Right, right. But how about like uh, how, how to maybe just, if you have any ideas about ways for them to build a career um, in in this field and try to put themselves in the best position to enjoy scholarship, enjoy their teaching, and and have a nice like a life in academics. Yeah. Well, I mean, find it doesn't have to be history of economics. Just if you're going to become an academic, it is a tough. In some ways, I think it's a tougher life now than it was when we came up um, because I did anticipate getting a job even though I was an historian of economics uh, at, that was a tenure track job whereas right. today it's increasingly you have adjuncts teaching so I mean I think it is a tougher a tougher uh, road to hoe these days but as I said if you're if you're interested in this field there are ways to get to find out whether you're interested by coming through some of the programs that we've got at Duke and yeah. there are other places. I mean, George Mason is a wonderful example of a place that has a very, very exciting, rich, interesting set of ways to do economics that are outside what you'd get in a traditional boring program. mainstream yeah. <laughs> traditional uh, PhD program in economics. And uh, everyone recognizes that, not just people who are fanboys like me, but people well outside, uh, who are in mainstream programs. Yeah. People say that to me all the time. And you're going up to GNU, that's great. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they're, they're, they're excited about it. I do think one of the really exciting things about your program, and this is, well, I want you to react to this and then we'll wrap things up, which is that, um, you know, just with, with yourself, Kevin, and Steve, Kevin Hoover and Steve Metema there, and of, of course in the older days, days past, individuals like Crawford Goodwin and, and Roy and Neil, but Crawford Goodwin especially, uh, I recommend to everyone, there's a special issue of Hope, which has um, articles by Crawford in it and plus some reflections by other people. And it's it's really, um, he was a special uh, person in academics, a sort of a real gentleman uh, in, the, in the classic sense of that. Um, but you also, with Kevin Hoover you ha and Steve Metema and yourself, you have, uh, you know, three people that are really dedicated to scholarship and believe seriously in the craft of the historian of thought. And so you you have a, a fantastic core for people to go and be exposed to. And um, and that's part of what is the draw there besides the, the, you know, economist papers, the literal resources that you have for people to work on, um, which is phenomenal. You also have this rich culture of individuals dedicated to scholarship. And I think it really serves as a fantastic beachhead for history of economic thought. Um, and so just put in one last pitch for coming through the Duke programs and the, the various benefits that they can get from it. Right. So you mentioned Steve Metema, and he is teaching in the Summer Institute. But until this very day, he was not a member of the faculty at uh, at Duke, but I just got an email um, that uh, the offer was accepted, so he is now a Duke faculty member. That's fantastic. So, uh, Kevin, uh, Steve Metema, Kevin Hoover, Steve Metema, and Bruce Caldwell are, are all faculty members at Duke. And we do enjoy what we do, so um, have a look at our website, see what our programs are. Um, if you have any questions, send me an email. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Bruce. It's great having pleasure. you on this.
a real pleasure to be here, Pete. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.